Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. Today we're talking about honesty, dishonesty, cheating, and lying. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. (laughs) That, of course, was George Costanza from Seinfeld, one of television's most prolific liars. Here with me to talk about why we lie and how we lie is behavioral economist Dan Ariely. His new book is The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. Dan Ariely, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Good to be back here. I think when it comes to basic morality, we want to see ourselves in black and white. Uh, mostly, mostly white. Right. right. <laughs> we want to see ourselves in good. But, uh, but, but your book makes it clear that when it comes to being dishonest, it's not such a bright dividing line. Yeah. So the thing is that we have two motivations. What we find is that people are, on one hand, we want to look at ourselves as honest, wonderful, caring people. That's on one hand. On the other hand, we want to benefit from cheating. And you could say, how could you do that, right? How could you both view yourself as honest and be dishonest at the same time? It turns out you can. As long as you have flexible cognitive skills, which we all do, and as long as you cheat just a little bit, you could get both of them. So as long as we cheat just a little bit, we can benefit from cheating at the same time, keep viewing ourselves as honest people. And you could just ask yourself, right, uh, in the last week, right, how many times you think you've lied? You don't have to say, but, you know. Notice the silence. Yes. <laughs> you know, we, we lie We lie many times a day. And, and when you ask people, and how honest do you think you are? Everybody says, oh, yeah, I'm perfect. You're an honest, wonderful person. And this is exactly the kind of conundrum that I wanted to uh, explore in this research. Uh, but, but it's also important uh, practically, right? Because if you think about it, what we have a model in our minds that is very much like the rational model of crime. We think that the reason people lie is because of cost-benefit analysis, that people think, what do I stand to gain? What do I stand to lose? What's the chance of being caught? How much time will I get in prison? Is it worth it or not? And because that's the model, that's what we think we are, that's also how we try to protect ourselves as individuals, but also as companies and also in policy. And we put a tremendous amount of effort to try and create that kind of crime that is basically about the cost-benefit analysis, but we almost don't pay any attention to the small cheating that we can all do day in and day out many times. And the reality is that there's much more economic devastation coming from the second part that we don't really pay attention to. Before I move on to some of the more common themes that you articulate in your book about how we act, I was curious because you are a behavioral economist and you've done other books looking at different aspects of our behavior. Was there something that evidenced itself in those experiments and studies that made you say, you know, I really need to pay attention to dishonesty and honesty? So, um, so it's, every time I do research, I do it about one particular topic, and there's something that makes me curious about that. And dishonesty actually for me came about not because of a particular study. It came about because of Enron. Right? So when Enron came about, I basically asked the question, what is a better description of Enron? That there were three bad apples in the company and they kind of did everything? Or is it a better description to think that there's a whole barrel of slightly bad apples with nobody particularly uh, being evil? And, and this was an important question from the perspective of how do you uh, prevent crime? If you think it's all about bad apples, just try not to hire bad apples or try to fire them quickly. But if you think that we can all do that, uh, then maybe we should think very carefully about it. And then the financial crisis hit. And again, the the question was, what is the financial crisis? Should we think about people in Wall Street as evil, as people who've kind of planned and plotted to take money away from us? And uh, I I teach in a business school. I used to teach uh, here at MIT. I uh, moved to Duke a few years ago. And I had some of my students who called me up, my ex-students who became... Uh, traders in in Wall Street. And some of them I know and love, and it's really hard to think of them as evil. But not only that, uh, they lost their entire fortune as well. They had uh, their own money in in those terrible stocks as well. So all of a sudden, it was harder to basically think that it's just about evil in the world, and maybe we should look uh, more carefully in small details. And finally, if you look at behavioral economics, I think it's a field that is saying that small details matter, right? That you look at how 
a form is being created in terms of opt-in or opt-out or what's the default, that will make a big effect. Uh, whether we're being served a bigger meal or a smaller meal will affect how much we eat. I mean, it's a, basically a discipline that looks at the small small effects and how they're going to have consequently and uh, across many people in many situations, big effects on behavior. So all of that kind of drew me to that perspective on uh, uh, irrationality and then dishonesty. And I tell you, it's been really interesting to do these experiments. I can only imagine. Well, a couple of uh, big things that you point out. First of all, that dishonesty is contagious. I just found this fascinating. So here I am. I'm. I think I'm pretty honest. I'm just used. <laughs> and but if I'm hanging around some people who are doing some stuff, I I'll catch it. Yes. So <laughs> so first of all, let me kind of describe the basic paradigm. The basic paradigm we use for uh, measuring cheating, uh, because first of all, you want to measure cheating, and we want to try and see what makes it bigger and smaller. So to measure cheating, we take a sheet of paper with 20 simple math problems, problems that anybody could solve if they had enough time. And we say to people, you have five minutes, solve as many as you can, we'll give you a dollar per question. People start working on those as fast as they can. At the end of the five minutes, we say, stop, put your pencil down and count how many questions you got correctly. People count how many questions they got correctly. And then we say, please go to the back of the room and shred the piece of paper. And then come back to the front of the room and tell us how many questions you got correctly. People do that. On average, people report that they solve six problems. We pay them $6. But people don't know in the experiment is that we played with a shredder. So the shredder only shreds the sides of the page, but the main body of the page remains intact. And we can jump into the recycling bin and we can find out how many questions people really solve correctly. What do we find? The vast majority of people solve four problems. So the vast majority of people solve four and report six. And we have very few people who report to solve everything, very few big cheaters, a ton of little cheaters. So what about social contagion? In one experiment, uh, we did two changes. The first thing we did was we prepaid people. So everybody had an envelope with all the money. And we asked them that when they finished counting how many questions they got correctly, to pay themselves and leave the remaining money in the envelope. That was the first thing. The second thing is we hired an acting student. And the acting student, 30 seconds into the experiment, raised their hand and said, excuse me, Mr. Experimenter, I solved everything. What do I do now? Now, if you're in the experiment, you're still on problem one. You know that there's <laughs> no way that this person has solved everything. You know that they're cheating. And the experimenter said, if you solved everything, you're free to go. Get up and go. And they go. Now, imagine you're in a room and you see somebody cheats in an egregious way. What happens? Lots of people cheat all of a sudden. But there's another interesting twist to this because if lots of more people cheat, you can say, why is that? One reason could be that people are now realizing there's no cost, there's no penalty, right? You sit there in the room, you see somebody cheat, you say, hey, there's no cost to this. Another possibility is that it's not about the penalty, but it's about the fact that you think it's more acceptable, more socially acceptable. After all, you sit with groups of people just like you in the room. They're all kind of similar social economic status, the same university, Maybe people are viewing it as okay. So to test this, by the way, the experiment we ran at Carnegie Mellon, everybody was a Carnegie Mellon student, the cheating student was the Carnegie Mellon student, everybody was a Carnegie Mellon student. In the second condition, we dressed him up with the University of Pittsburgh sweatshirt. So now, when he cheated, it was the same in the same way that he portrayed it in this experiment, you can cheat and get away with it, but he did not give people the social cue of saying people from your university, from your society are doing it. What happened now? Cheating actually went down. Hmm. So social contagion happens, but it's important it's people from our social group, the people we identify with, are going to do that. Now, you know, you can just think about something like illegal download, illegally downloaded music. I ask my students about it. Everybody has it on their computers. And everybody thinks it's okay because everybody else is doing that, right? Now, that's an extreme case because really everybody is doing it and there's no moral consideration. Um, if I ask my students, and I did, how many of you would be upset if the New York Times, for example, published your name and said that you have illegally downloaded music on your computer, nobody feels embarrassed anymore, right? It's basically became socially accepted. And there's lots of layers like that. Now you can think about other cases. Uh, what about uh, accounting rules? About What about misbehavior to customers or behavior mm. to customers? Uh, what do we do in our personal relationship? Uh, how do Boston drivers decide what's okay, <laughs> what are rules okay and not okay to drive? All of those things are socially constructed. And once we see bad behaviors around us, we have a tendency to think, to basically gravitate toward that regard. The, the final problem with that in reality 
is to think about which examples do you see. Do you see the examples of people who behave well or do you see the examples of people who behave badly? And we have a bias towards seeing people who behave badly. The people kind of go extreme out of the norm are much more visible, not to mention the fact that they're also going to be likely to be in the news, they're going to be more salient, people are going to talk about them. So there is this escalation that can happen over time when we see the behavior of others and we kind of feel that they are defining the new normal, the new normal. Yeah, well, more about that new normal. My guest is Dan Ariely. His new book is The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone and Especially Ourselves. You can join the conversation at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. When do you justify lying? Do you think it compromises your integrity? Call to defend the white lie. Call to stick up for straight-up honesty at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. You can write to our Facebook page or send me a tweet at Callie Crossley. This is WGBH Boston Public Radio. WGBH programs exist because of you and Russell's, a family gardening tradition for over 135 years with annuals, perennials, herbs and shrubs, bird baths, statuary, pots, plus jewelry, gifts and toys. Russell's Garden Center, Route 20, Wayland. And Innuendo, presenting the Hunter Douglas Celebration of Light Window Fashions event, featuring Hunter Douglas Duet Architella energy-efficient shades, silhouette and luminette shading systems. Innuendo.com. And from members of the Ralph Lowell Society, these most generous annual contributors lead the way in sustaining WGBH as a public media resource, available and free to all. WGBH.org slash Ralph Lowell. Next time on The World. I'll have another is charging on the outside. I'll have another, one of the first two jewels in the Triple Crown. On his back, Mexican-born jockey Mario Gutierrez. He was born to be a jockey. He's got great hands and he has a great sense of timing. He's gifted. But he almost missed his chance. A jockey story next time on The World. Coming up at 3 here on 89.7 WGBH. The WGBH Spring Auction has gone into extra innings. Bid high on a trip for two to the Windy City, the Aegean Sea, the Caribbean, or to any other JetBlue destination. You might even find yourself with tickets to see the New England Patriots take on the Miami Dolphins. Be a hometown hero. Support public broadcasting and secure a great deal all at the same time. It's easy to do at auction.wgbh.org. If two heads are better than one, how about a hundred or a thousand? I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, we investigate the power of crowdsourcing. Saturday morning at 7 here on 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. That's some classic Jack Nicholson from A Few Good Men. Can you handle the truth? Can you tell the truth? That's what we're talking about with behavioral economist Dan Ariely. His new book is The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. You can join us at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. Do you see the potential for small lies paving the road to bigger, more harmful transgressions? How do you negotiate when to lie? and when not to lie. We're at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. You can write to our Facebook page or send us a tweet at Callie Crossley. Um, and we have a tweet, Dan Ariely, that I want to read to you. This comes from Karen 
Uh, she says, for the weekend spirit, I believe lying is contagious. One might view lying as just an embellishment, but I think we all lie about something. Much of the time on the, in quotes, rare occasions when I lie, I do it to avoid deep inspection into my life by someone else or to protect their feelings. I believe the current culture has accepted lying as a way of life, spinning a story. Years ago, most were ashamed to be caught in a lie. These days, many have no guilt about lying. It's accepted as part of life, just spinning the truth. It's a little bit of what you were saying. Yes, I think this is really about rationalization, right? The moment you could say, I'm doing it to help other people, really. It's not, I'm kind of altruistic in that uh, regard. This is something useful. And, you know, sometimes there's truth to that. And the real issue is that the moment things become more easily to rationalize, we do it to a higher degree. So again, if you say it's all about cost-benefit analysis, it's one model. If you say it's about rationalization, now there's the question of what gets you to rationalize to a higher degree. What's allow you to do that? So for example, in one experiment, what we find is that we got people to work with somebody else. So imagine you and I are a team. And in one case, if I cheat, I get the money, and if you cheat, you get the money. In another condition, if I cheat, we both share the revenues. What happened now? All of a sudden, my cheating goes up. Why? Because it's not just for me. It's for you. And now I can justify it to a higher degree. In fact, in one condition, we got it such that if I cheat, you're the one who's benefiting. And if you cheat, I'm the one who's benefiting. And that's when people cheated the most. Hmm. It's as if people became a little bit like Robin Hood. And, you know, I, I do these experiments in the lab, and, and these are kind of uh, scientific, and we have statistical data, but I also try to talk to big cheaters. And I talked to a guy who was involved in the MCI counting fraud, one of the MCI counting fraud, quite a few of them. And what was interesting about him is that he was in charge of collecting money from all kinds of uh, people who use their services, and including people like uh, phone sex and astrology and stuff like that, people who would not pay him very, very frequently. And he was really frustrated about that. And he was trying to cut them off, but the company would not let them cut them off because the people who signed them up wanted to keep on signing them up. And eventually he discovered a way to deal with this, which is just to go into the accounting system and take their bill, whatever it was, a million dollars, and replace it with zero. Mm. And they weren't paying anyway. At least the debt was not showing on the books. And when he was doing it, what was amazing is that he was not getting any personal gain. He was doing it for the company. And actually, if you look at many cases, there are lots of people who cheat for another cause, all these rogue operators and mm. so on. I mean, eventually those people take a huge blame and sometimes go to prison. This particular guy went to prison for quite a while for this. But when he was cheating, he wasn't cheating for himself. He was cheating for the company he was working for. And somehow this was the goal to kind of help out almost as a friendship way. Mm. And I think this is basically what white lies are. Uh, we have lots of values as humans. Not all of them are compatible. Okay. And sometimes when the values are incompatible, we have to decide which one do we adhere to. And sometimes loyalty gets higher. And sometimes when we can rationalize, it's even easier to do it a step further. All right. Seth from Chelmsford. Go ahead, please. You're on the Callie Crossley Show 89.7. Hi. Hi. Um, I was listening earlier, and it said about the um, you've got the group of people that are in the room, and if one person cheats, then the other people think it's okay to cheat? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I'm not sure if they think it's okay. We haven't tested what they think. I can just tell you they cheat more. <laughs> well, I'm, I think that it's um, because if they see the other person cheating, they see that the other person is going to get ahead <clears throat> and is going gonna, is gonna to get a better score. So if they're going to do it, then, then I, I can do it because you know, I don't want them to win. Yeah. So, so there's a couple of things to think about here. One is, is it, is it really about kind of competition? And I'm sure there are some cases in which it's about competition. But if you remember, we had another trial and in another condition. And in this condition, the person was wearing University of Pittsburgh sweatshirt instead of University of Carnegie Mellon sweatshirt. And now when they were cheating, they were still getting the most money. But now people would not take it as a sign that this was actually something okay to do. So I think this experiment, we also have other ones uh, that show that in this particular case, I don't think it's about competition. In fact, we have another experiment in which we took some people and we say to them, the average amount of problems that a person solves in five minutes is eight, when in fact it's four. So some people would tell it's eight, some people would tell it's four. And you would expect that if people are compelled by a, a, a 
winning and, um, and mm-hmm. getting over other people. They would cheat more when we tell them that other people are solving AIDS. We did not find it in that experiment. Mm-hmm. I think people basically have a fudge factor. They say, well, I solved four. I really want a little bit. What else can I justify? And competition is not always helping them uh, to justify. Now, this is not to say that this will not happen in this would happen in every case. I think there are many cases in which competition is going to further uh, increase the incentive to be dishonest. But in our case, we don't see that as the main driver. Uh, Seth, does that answer your question? I, I guess so. Um, I look at it when you're driving on the on the highway, and someone starts start speeding. I, I hope. I think we lost you, Seth. But. Yeah, so let's just say he starts speeding, then, you, then yeah. everybody else is encouraged to, to speed. That's right. But, yeah. but I think it's not so much because you want to get somewhere faster. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's, oh, he's going to get there faster than I am. It's a competition. Mm-hmm. It's all of a sudden saying, okay, this is probably okay to drive five miles. You know, lots of people have believed. How much be, beyond the speed limit do you think it's okay to drive and not get caught? Five. Five. Like, how yeah. do you get to that number? You know, you, you drive around, you see what other people do. You probably never talk to a policeman that says, what do you really catch and not well, catch? No, I'll give you a practical reason, because uh-huh. five is what you can go down to fast if you see the cop. <laughs> <laughs> you can get back to 55 Very pretty good. fast from 60. <laughs> but at 70, that's a different that's scenario. A- uh, let me ask this question. Um, is there a specific dishonest action, whether it be lying, cheating on your wife, bilking your company, whatever, that is the gateway dishonest action to bigger things? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a very uh, interesting question. We just started looking at this. So uh, one, one thing you can ask is whether being dishonest in one, areas of, one area of your life necessarily means that you're going to be dishonest in another area of your life. And a good example is to think again about students. They all have illegally downloaded material on their computers. Does it mean that they also do other things that are illegal? But see, at this point, as you pointed out, nobody thinks it's illegal. That's so, right. so well, they know they but, would know that yeah. cheating on a test is illegal. I mean, it's yeah. wrong. So go yeah. ahead. So, mm-hmm. so here is what I think. So, one of the uh, let, let me kind of walk you through this. So, one of the questions I've often asked is, uh, what are cultural differences? Everybody who's traveled have seen different types of cheating in different places. Um, so we've tried that. I grew up in Israel, so the first place we checked was Israel to see whether the Israelis cheat more than the Americans. By the way, what would you predict? I have no prediction. <laughs> what, 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 You're what too is politically the... correct. No, I think. no, <laughs> I just have no prediction. What's okay. the answer? They cheated just the same. Okay, all right. Then uh, <laughs> Francesca Gino, my Italian collaborator, said, come to Italy. We'll show you what the <laughs> Italians can do. Uh, the same as the Americans. We tried China, we tried Turkey, we tried the UK, we tried the Canadians. The Canadians will always think that they cheat less than the Americans. They don't, they cheat just the same. <laughs> now, here's the thing. When we do our experiments, we find that everybody cheats the same. But when you travel around, you see very different behaviors, not to mention the corruption index, right? There's lots of things that vary dramatically from country to country. And here is my current understanding of this. I think that when we deal with the basic ability of humans to rationalize. There's kind of 10, 15% fudge factor. We can all exaggerate a little bit and, and feel good about it. But what culture does, it doesn't mean that culture is not important. What culture does is it takes a particular domain of life, infidelity, cheating on your taxes, uh, dealing with insurance company, dealing with customers, and basically say that this something is not something you should worry about in the moral sense, right? In the same way that students don't worry about illegal downloads, in the same way the French don't seem to worry about infidelity, different cultures basically take particular activities. It's not morality across the board. And I think that once you start behaving uh, this way in one particular aspect, it helps uh, escort down that particular behavior. I see. Now, we did do one study that showed one kind of cross behavior across, across morality. Uh, it was kind of an interesting experiment with uh, fashion goods. Um, so there's a phenomenon we call the what the hell effect. And the what the hell effect is the idea that you start cheating small and you think of yourself as a good person. And at some point you say, you know what? I'm not a good person. I might as well enjoy it. Mm. And uh, this is something people know in dieting, right? You start your morning, you're on a diet, then you eat a muffin and say, ah, today I'm not good. I might as well have a burger and shake. Maybe I'll start next Monday. So what we did was we took a counterfeit goods. Actually, we took uh, real goods. We, mm. took, we got a designer called Chloe yes. to send us sunglasses. Mm. And we told half the people that they were wearing fake glasses and half the sunglasses and half the people that were wearing the real ones. And we asked them to walk around campus for a while. 
And after they walked ca- around campus for a while, they came back. And then we said, before you take off your glasses, please do this task, and we could measure cheating on that task. And what we found was that people were cheating to a higher degree if they were wearing the counterfeit glasses. Hmm. Or now, what they thought were the counterfeit glasses. They, they they counter- yes. Yeah. And I think what happened is that once you think of yourself as tainted in some way and you still have residue of that, and you know sunglasses kind of remind you and they have the logo and you know it's the people thought it was counterfeit and so on, all of a sudden if you think of yourself as being slightly tainted, it's easier to take the next step out. The question is, do you think of yourself as being tainted in mm-hmm. that regard or not? There's one more thing I, I do want to mention, is that um, when we do these cross-cultural studies, we usually don't find any differences, but we do find one difference. Um, when we do these studies, we either go to universities and test students, or we go to bars. And when we go to bars, we assume that people who go to bars in every place are kind of the same, and we pay people such that every four questions they solve correctly, they get one glass of beer. So we went to Washington, D.C., and we went to a bar where congressional staffers hang out in, and we went to New York City, went to a bar where bankers hang out in, and we tested who cheated more. So what do you think? Any predictions? Well, of course, we'd all go for the bankers, (laughs) you know? (laughs) You're right. So I actually thought it would be the politicians, but it was the bankers, two to one. They cheated twice as much. But I should point out, these were junior politicians, right? So maybe there's room for growth. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to 89.7 WGBH and online at WGBH.org. We're talking about lying and cheating with behavioral economist Dan Ariely. His new book is The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially ourselves. You can join the conversation at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970, or you can write to our Facebook page or send us a tweet at Callie Crossley. So right now, there seems to be a time where dishonesty is just everywhere we look. You know, we've got the John Edwards thing happening. We have uh, Yahoo with the executive falsifying his res- uh, his recipe, his resume. Yeah. Uh, and so it leads me to think, is there a, something going on in this time that allows for more dishonesty or are we just catching it more? <laughs> I think probably we're catching it more as, as one part, but I think there's also things that are making it more likely. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So we talked already about the contagion and what you think is acceptable and not acceptable. But one of the most worrisome experiments we created was an experiment in which we paid people not in money but in tokens. So imagine it's the same experiment. You finish, you shred the piece of paper, you come to the experimenter, and usually you would look them in the eye and say, Mr. Experimenter, I solved X problems, give me X dollars. And they would pay you a dollar per question. In this other condition, you say, Mr. Experimenter, I solved X problems, give me X tokens. And we pay them in pieces of plastic. Now they take this piece of plastic and they walk 12 feet to the side and they change for a dollar. So in a sense, people are not lying for money, but it's something that will become money very, very quickly. What happened? In our experiment, people doubled their cheating. Hmm. Now, this experiment worries me the most because if you think that money, the physical version of money, keeps us honest and keeps our morality at bay, what happens is we get multiple steps removed from money. Uh, what happens with stock, stop options, derivative, mortgage-backed securities? What happened when we move to an electronic wallet? Would all of those create cases in which people can steal to a higher degree or be slightly dishonest to a higher degree and nevertheless have a very easy time justifying it to themselves? And if you think about it, we're moving in that direction. Mm. We're moving in the direction of having things that are much more abstract. And because of that, I think we're not as – we don't face to the same degree the consequences and the uh, realization of how immoral – are our acts. What I found fascinating in the book is this part where you talk about You mean many things. Many things for fascinating. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to lie to you. (laughs) But uh, many things are fascinating. And I was particularly interested in in your point making that even people who are mostly honest, this is by their actions, need some kind of boundary to keep them honest. Yeah. And, you know, uh, religion used to do that for us. Right? Religion used to tell us exactly what is acceptable and not acceptable, what the lines are. And once you have religion, there's really not that much flexibility. Uh, also, when you have a military rule, I recently visited a Virginia military academy. The students there have no degrees of freedom. There's no question that they uh, are under control. Every moment of the day is regulated. They have no, almost no uh, decisions. 
uh, to make, almost no gray zones. And then you look at that and you say, let's look at medicine, let's look at accounting, let's look at banking. The amount of gray zones are just incredible. And without, with such large gray zones, it's really hard to figure out what is right and what is wrong and how much to bend the rules and what is acceptable. And here's another thing we just did. We asked people to um, take the role of a CEO of a bank. And we say, you're a CEO of a bank. You get paid some salary, mostly by stock options. In your bank, you want to make more money for the bank. And there's all these kind of shady activities you could take, and what the people in the banking industry call revenue enhancements. You can charge a little bit more for ATM. And you they can are, hold, by the way. That's right. And, <laughs> yeah. and you could hold checks yeah. for a little longer. You could do all kinds mm-hmm. of kind of shady things. And we gave them a list of 15 of those and how much money they can expect to make in each of those. And we say, which one of those would you add to your repertoire? And some people, we said that their bank is just a bank. And some people, we said that their bank uh, has the ideology of maximizing shareholder value. And now what we saw is that people who were under the headline of maximizing shareholder values were willing to screw their customer to a much higher degree. (laughs) They basically had an ideology, right? They said, it is not selfish that I want to do it for my own revenue. I'm doing it because that's the goal of the bank. It's a company. The company needs to maximize shareholder value. All of those things are much more easily justifiable. So all of those things really matter. And the degrees of shades of gray that we face is really quite incredible when you stop and look at it. Hmm. Mary Ann from Woods Hole. Go ahead, please. You're on the Callie Crossley Show, WGBH. Hello. Hi. Um, I had a question about what makes a person a good liar. Like, when I try to lie, people read right through me. They know that I'm not telling the truth. I, I don't know what it is, but and, and then I start laughing or whatever, and I just I can't hold it. But then there are other people who are just naturally born good liars. I don't know if it's because they have good acting skills or what is it? But I was just curious, what makes... Good question, Marianne. We're going to put that to Dan Ariely. Well, the non-serious answer, of course, is practice. Just practice. (laughs) (laughs) Practice leads to perfect. No, but um, we've tried to look at personality differences and what kind of people lie more and what people lie less. And what we find is that one of the biggest predictors are creativity. And here is the reason. If you think that the reason that people lie is that we try to both, you know, have the cake and eat it too. We try to uh, think of ourselves as honest people and lie at the same time. Then if you're creative, you can tell better stories. And all of a sudden, if you can tell better stories, you could lie a little bit more and still feel good about yourself. And, and, we've uh, and if it- I may, you're, 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 you have a great point in your book about how many students have killed their grandmother about a billion times because they're not <laughs> creative about how to lie about what they're doing, yeah. <laughs> not, not having done the work. But continue. Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 love, I love the excuses <laughs> that the students come with at the end of the semester. Uh, and I, I try to have a straight face when they tell me <laughs> these uh, sub stories. Um, but... But we've done it in multiple ways. We tried to measure creativity and see how it correlates with cheating. We went to an advertisement, uh, advertising agency and we measured uh, the people in this advertising agency and we measured uh, how much, yeah, let's, let's call it moral flexibility, people have in different <laughs> jobs in the, in, in the company and the people who were in accounting had, were much more rigid in their moral fiber. The people who were creative were much, much less. So I, I think, again, you know, there's some psychopaths out there, right? There's some right. people who just don't care about anything, but there are really, really few of them. Most people, lying is really about being able to convince yourself why this is actually okay. And this is the story, and creativity really helps. And also ideology helps, like the story about uh, shareholder value. So the moment you have an ideology about why this is actually okay and you can justify it, cheating increases to a higher degree. And you're able to lie easier. And you're able to lie. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, also the, the other thing is that it's really easy in retrospect to villainize cheaters, right? So we look at, at Edwards. We can look at the person from Yahoo. We can look at Madoff. We can look at all kinds of people and in retrospect villainize them. But in my uh, discussions with big cheaters, it is almost – actually, I, not almost. Every time, every cheater I've talked to <laughs> basically started with one small step – that they could rationalize, and they did not think about the end game. Mm. In fact, even when I talk to judges and I ask them, how many people do they really think, do they think focus on imprisonment as a deterrent of crime? They basically said nobody. Mm. Right? Most, most cheating is really kind of one step at a time, doing one thing just for once to, until something else happened, to protect something or to do something, and then it just escalates. So it's rationalization and slippery slope, I think, is the biggest account. And then you have to think about, 
how you prevent that kind of dishonesty. Uh, in a study, Dan Ariely, that was not done by you uh, as we go to break, uh, it was done in Britain, said men lie more than women and they tell different kinds of lies. I'll let you respond to that when we come back. We're talking about honesty and dishonesty and how we can stop ourselves from going down that slippery slope of white lies, deception, and full-blown fabrications. My guest is Dan Ariely. His new book is The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. You can catch him tonight at 6 o'clock at the Brattle Theater and get him right here when we come back at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. This is WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atrius Health. And it's your move. We are a group of professional women who have gotten together to help families move from where they are to where they want to be. Janice Armour, co-owner. We're in a very specific market, and we wanted to get the word out more aggressively. GBH has got a certain reputation that supports what we want to do, and we'd like to support that as well. The response has been very good. To learn more, visit WGBH.org sponsorship. Pink slime has been in the news recently, but have you heard of meat glue? Meat glue is an enzyme that the meat industry has been using for a while. It's used to sort of fuse two pieces of meat together and make them appear as if it's one piece of meat. On the next Fresh Air, Tom Philpot, the food and ag blogger for Mother Jones magazine, talks about the meat industry. Join us. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. Hi, my name is Maya, and I'm a WGBH sustainer. Sustainers like Maya break their gifts down into monthly installments that automatically renew. That helps 89.7 plan better, and better plans means fewer fundraisers. And that's why Maya is responsible for... This hour of programming coming to you fundraiser-free. Thanks, Maya. Yeah, you too. Join Maya by supporting 89.7 as a sustainer online at WGBH.org. From the Exconomy Newsroom in Kendall Square, this is Greg Wong for WGBH Boston Public Radio. The WGBH Exconomy Report, Friday during Morning Edition, a partnership between Exconomy.com and 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. I'm talking to behavioral economist Dan Ariely about why we lie from big lies to small ones like these. Now we're going to run a few tests. This is a simple lie detector. I'll ask you a few yes or no questions, and you just answer truthfully. Do you understand? Yes. That clip was from The Simpsons. That was Homer taking the lie detector test and failing badly. Dan, psychologically, what is going on when we tell those small lies like that, and what motivates us to tell those small lies? Well... So uh, lots of time it's about our uh, selfish interest. And what selfish interest does is it colors our view of the world and therefore let us tell small lies. So, uh, for example, are you a fan on any particular sports team? No. No. Wrong girl. Wrong girl. (laughs) So imagine you were. Uh, If you talk to a sports fan and you say, imagine that you went to a game and the referee called a call against your team, what would you think about the referee? And most people admit that they would think the referee is evil, stupid, vicious, you know, something, <laughs> something like that. It's really hard to see reality in an accurate way when your motivation is to see it in a biased way. Mm. Now, what happens is money is the same thing, right? You're not fan of a particular team. Well, we are fan of money. More money is better than not money. So now imagine you're a banker. And you get to get, let's say, paid $5 million a year if you could only view mortgage-backed security as a good product. <laughs> now, I'm not asking whether you would lie, whether you would tell your clients, oh, my goodness, this is a fantastic product, when in fact you believe it's not. But wouldn't your motivation color your view of them? And now you would believe that they are slightly better than they really are. Absolutely. And what if they were complex and difficult to evaluate and easy to rationalize and all of those things? Now it will push you even further. And what if everybody around you do the same thing? So you now go. you can see how... Motivation, basically a biased motivation, can basically cause us to lie a little bit, but do it consistently over a long time with devastating consequences. Well, we got a bunch of calls here. Michael from Norwood, you're on the Cali Crossley Show. Go ahead, please. 
Kelly, hi, Dan. How are you doing? Very well. Good. I just have a question for you. It has more to do with, I guess, definition of terms. You've been talking about lying. Um, I'm curious if you, I mean, it's defined as just the absence of honesty or, or the act of being dishonest because you're, people, I, because I think I'm getting confused with the cheating slash lying concept because when you're cheating, you're not always lying. Say you're speeding. It's not a dishonest act necessarily. <laughs> yeah. So, so in my experiments, actually, I I would refer to what we call the operational definition, which is what we actually measure. So, in our experiments, people solve a particular number of problems, and then we say, "Tell us how many questions you really solve, and we'll pay you according to that." Or we say, "Pay yourself according to how much you really deserve." So, I look at uh, in my experiment, I use the word lying and cheating in the same kind of way. I talk about how much do people take money that they haven't really deserved. So that's kind of the definition I, I talk to, I, I talk about, and the one that we use in all of the experiments. Now, I know that kind of, there's all kind of other more nuances, you know, is white lies really lies and so on. But, but for me, I kind of stick with this definition of taking more money than you really deserve. And that's what uh, all this book is about. And all the experiments we do are with this particular version of lying. Thanks very much for the call, Michael. Carol from Worcester, go ahead, please. You're on the Callie Crossley Show, WGBH. Hi there. Hi. Um, I wanted to mention that um, lying can be a learned behavior from childhood, too, because with my dad, he would tell us that he could not abide a liar, so if we did something wrong, tell the truth. Well, when we told the truth, we got punished. (laughs) We could come up with a good lie. We could sidestep that punishment, and everything was fine. So we kind of learned that dad didn't really want to hear the truth. Yeah, you know, it, and this is not the most extreme behavior. I mean, if we if we are kind of thinking about it, we have to recognize that we actually teach our kids to lie. Uh, so I have a disability, and often uh, when I walk around, the kids point at me and ask their parents, you know, what what is this? And the parents in, you know, 98% of the time pushes their hand down and say, you don't do that. Now, the kid, I mean, this is not lying, but it's about telling people not to express externally what they're thinking internally and there's a difference between what you really think and what you're actually going to say and this is what you need to be a a civic person in society so now think about this imagine you work in an accounting firm and now you still care about other people and you still think about well there's a different version of the truth that we admit inside and a different version of the truth that we tell outside and all of a sudden you realize that honesty is a really very tricky situation, we have to be much more strict about the rules, about the definition, about when we want people to be perfectly honest, and when it is kind of okay because it's socially needed to shade the truth a little bit. Carol, thanks for the call. James from Randolph, you're on the Callie Crossley Show, 89.7 WGBH. Hi there. Hi. Um, Well, I was wondering if there was any kind of study or experiment showing that people are more dishonest with digital forms of money rather than physical forms of money, and if maybe that has something to do with a lot of the issues that have gone on on Wall Street or um, with different mutual fund trades, that sort of thing. Yeah, so the experiment I described earlier when people cheat for tokens less than they cheat for money, I think, is one one account, and here's kind of a, a intuition about this. Uh, little Johnny comes home from school with a note from the teacher that said the little Johnny stole a pencil from the kid who was sitting next to him. And Johnny's father is, is angry, he's furious. He said, Johnny, I'm humiliated and embarrassed. You never, never, never take a pencil from the kid who's sitting next to you. This is just awful. You're grounded for three weeks and just wait until your mother comes. And beside Johnny, if you need a pencil, you know very well you could just say something. You could just ask and I will bring you dozens of pencils from work. <laughs> and <laughs> now, if you find that uh, funny, it's because you probably realize that with taking 10 cents from petty cash box is something that you can't do without thinking of yourself as a thief. But taking a pencil from work is something you can justify in all kinds of ways. You could say everybody is doing it. You could say work is putting it for me to take home. You can tell all kinds of stories. And I think digital money is probably similar. We can probably make up stories about why this is okay, why did nobody is really losing. And, you know... Uh, For example, who is actually responsible for that and who is eventually going to pay? Uh, I think it's kind of shady and therefore allowing people for much more rationalization. So we got to call Dan Ariely, behavioral economist from Duke, uh, from a Dan in the car. And he said he wanted to know how much lying you do. How much lying (laughs) I do? Uh, Just as much as you probably. (laughs) 
lying, lying is uh, lying is complex and something we do all the time. Um, I'll give you my most recent salient lie. Uh, I was in uh, London last week, or maybe two weeks ago, and uh, I, I was in a cab, and this guy was like an hour and 15-minute thing, and, and the guy um, grew up in Iran and came to the UK when he was seven, uh, and he basically was an anti-Semite. He described uh, Jews and Israelis as kind of the devil spawns and how they are destroying the world and the Jewish conspiracy, and I'm both Jewish and Israeli. Um, and kind of 45 minutes into it, when I get his whole life perspective on that, uh, he asked me where I'm from. You know, at that moment, I could have said, hey, you know, by the way, it's interesting. I'm Israeli and Jewish. And why don't we talk a little bit about your beliefs and where they come from? I actually had no energy for that discussion. I didn't think I could convince him on anything. And I actually wanted to understand where he's coming from to a higher degree. So I basically said I was American. Uh, you know, which is, you know, I live in the States, so it's kind of... Uh, almost okay, but I think it's a it's a standard example of I don't want to deal with the consequence of what will happen. So I say something that will not get me involved to that to that degree. Um, I will tell you one one other thing. So you know, I uh, quite a few years ago I ran an experiment at the lab at Harvard. I should say Harvard, where <laughs> here and. Uh, Usually when we run experiments, I kind of hope that the results would show something, right? So I saw that I hope one group would be higher and one group would be lower. And on that particular day, we got the results, and they were basically, as I expected, aside from one participant. That was a participant that performed the worst possible way. Like you couldn't be, I don't say dumber, but you couldn't perform worse than that participant. So I looked carefully in his data. And he was 25 years older than anybody else who came to the study. And we all remember that there was one drunk guy that came to the study. We paid quite well. There was a drunk guy that came off the street. It was the guy who was performing the worst. Clearly, he didn't understand the instruction and so on. So we took him out. We took him out from the data, and the results show this beautiful pattern. But then a couple of days later, I thought about it with, the, with my students. And we said, what would have happened if by chance the drunk people would have been in the other group, the group we hoped would have a low low result. Then, first of all, we would have been very happy with him. We probably would have never looked at his drunk issue. And even if we did, we probably would have a story about why drunk people are actually good in the experiment. And, and we, we didn't throw the data out and we rerun the experiment. But for me, that experience was incredibly important because at that moment, when I took the data out, this particular data point out, I was thinking I was like a knight in shining armor, helping the data pattern shine through, right? I was clearing the path and letting the truth emerge. But the fact is I wasn't. I had a particular bias and I had a particular way of wanting to see the results. I'm also kind of a creative guy. And maybe I could have told another story. If he wasn't <laughs> the drunk, maybe I would have told another story. So now I have a, a set of very strict rules for myself. Uh, you could decide, for example, in the experiment, never to include data from drunk people, but you have to decide it up front. You mm. can decide that people who don't read English, you can do whatever you want, but only up front, after the fact, you can't do it. Not because we're lying to other people, because we're lying to ourselves, and it's so easy to fool ourselves into what we want to believe, and that's actually what what we're getting. So, so now uh, I have to say that I, I think we're kind of much more strict about what we accept and not accept and how we would behave because we are not as blinded to our own irrationality as far as deception and self-deception goes. Ryan from Randolph, go ahead, please. You're on the Callie Crossley Show, 89.7. Hi, I was just calling to ask, um, would you agree that society kind of promotes lying in a way? Um, for instance, like, when we sign up for something online, it asks us to agree to the terms and agreements, and it's usually like a 90-page document. <laughs> but people usually skip through it and just say, like, they agree to it without even reading a term or, like, a word on the term. Yeah, so, uh, so I, would, I would say that you're probably right in two ways. The, the first one is that uh, society encourages cheating because we teach people that there's lots of gray lines. But the other thing that you're pointing out, I think, is the issue of revenge. So let me tell you a little story. We ran this experiment, actually, in Boston. We hired an acting student, uh, Daniel Berger-Jones, who was a student here. And he uh, walked around uh, coffee shops and asked people whether they would do a study for five minutes for $5. Almost everybody said yes. He explained to them the task. And five minutes later, he came. He took the task back and gave them $9. And he said, here's your $5. Please count it and sign a receipt for $5. And the question was, how many people in Boston would return the extra cash? 
Um, and in that particular condition, about 50% of the people returned the money. In another condition, what he did was when he explained to them the task, he picked up his phone. He pretended somebody called him up to talk about pizza tonight, and he talked for 12 seconds. Hey, John, what's up? Uh, later, so on. Put the phone down and came back to the instruction. Now he annoyed people. Not a lot, but just a little bit. What happened? Now about 15% of the people gave the money back. <laughs> so the moment we are annoyed, we are more willing to justify cheating. We basically feel like it's karma, right? We're just making the world a better place by being dishonest. The most disturbing thing about the experiment with Daniel, though, was that sometimes he presented himself as it was his money and his experiment. So he's the person who did the violation. So if they took extra money from him, he would be the person that suffered. And some other time he said, oh, it's this other professor who is working. I'm just working for him and it's not my money. People didn't care. Wow. The moment they could justify something, they justified to a higher degree, took, took more money. So as companies annoy us, I think it really helps people justify a higher degree of dishonesty as kind of retaliation, revenge, karma, call it whatever you want. Um, the point in your book about people are more susceptible when tired and hungry has really yes. got to me. And I, I downloaded your app called Conscience, and then I read the thing about healthy eating right before I was going to eat. And I was annoyed that I had to download the app on Conscience because I was going to interview you, and you're taking up my time on the weekend. So, <laughs> so I look at it, and then actually it impacted me after I read the the reasons that I chose the healthy dish, and then I was so full I couldn't have dessert. So it works. Very good. <laughs> If you put boundaries. Nothing, I got 30 seconds here, wondering if anything surprised you in all of the experiments looking at this subject. The thing that surprised me the most is how strong conflicts of interest are and how susceptible people are to them. And they can come up from favors and money and so on. And we have to deal with them all the time with our doctors and lawyers and so on. And we really have to learn how to deal with this to a much better degree because if we don't, we're going to really suffer. So that was the biggest surprise. And the I biggest surprise. We're going to see more of that. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure we are, unless we learn how to deal with it. But we really have to. Okay, so the first step, I guess, is getting an app called Conscience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first step is really to understand where are you in life where there's lots of conflicts of interest that is influencing you. And to realize that the people who are giving you advice with conflicts of interest are not necessarily bad. But mm. the moment they have conflicts of interest, they could behave extremely badly. Um, and now you can say, okay, if my physician, for example, is going to get paid by one treatment over the other more, can they really see things in an objective way? If my dentist is doing it, can they really see in an objective way? And if it's a big decision, you know, if you go to a mechanic and they have conflicts of interest and they, you know, replace an extra carburetor or, you know, whatever, maybe not a big deal. If you go to a doctor and they recommend some unneeded treatment, maybe maybe you should go for second opinion. Maybe we should right. learn how to protect ourselves in those cases. Well, there's so much to talk about here, and um, I think I'm honest, but we'll, not so much. We've been talking about honesty and dishonesty with Dan Ariely. He's the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University. His new book is The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. You can catch him tonight at 6 o'clock at the Brattle Theater. To get tickets, visit the Harvard Bookstore at harvard.com. In the meanwhile, you can keep on top of the Callie Crossley Show at wgbh.org slash Callie Crossley. Follow us on Twitter or become a fan of the Callie Crossley Show on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Antonio Oliart, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, Abby Ruzica. Our intern is Sloan Paiva. We're a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.